Are you a woman, person of color, or a member of some other historically marginalized community who's sick and tired of shrinking to fit into spaces that weren't designed for you? If you're ready to surround yourself with people who think big and you want to get inspired by women who are bold enough to write their own rules, you're in the right place. Welcome to the Build Your Own Table podcast, where we spotlight powerhouse women who got tired of waiting for someone to give them a seat at the table, so they built their own. This is an inclusive space where you can come to listen, get inspired, and make some new connections to help you take that next step into living your best life. I'm your host, Nakia Gray. Welcome to the show. In today's episode, I am sharing with you why I built my own table. So let's go back to before I went to law school. Let's start with my legal career. So prior to going to law school, I actually worked uh, for four years in the fashion industry. I worked a, a, at a great job in the fashion industry, utilizing my marketing degree. I started off as an assistant buyer. I was promoted um, very quickly. This was the Clinton administration. So, you know, times were good. The economy was good. It was a great time to be alive back in those 90s, okay? So I had a very successful and exciting career. In the back of my mind, though, I knew that I was really destined to go to law school. Like since first grade, my first grade teacher told me that I should become a lawyer. Now, I didn't know any lawyers. I didn't come from a family of lawyers. I was actually the first in my family to graduate from college. But I felt like, you know, I really should go to law school. So at the time, after September 11th happened, the market really changed and the economy changed drastically. And so the retail chain that I was working for was bought out by Macy's. And so at that time, everyone that worked in the corporate offices here in the D.C. area had to either go to New York to, to remain with the company or to San Francisco. And for me at that time, that just wasn't an option. I was married. I had two small children. And that was just not going to work for, for me and for my family. So I was like, OK, now's the time for me to go ahead and go back to law school. So I went to law school and, you know, I was a non-traditional student. I was a student who wasn't like most of my colleagues. I had um, responsibilities. I had children. I had work experience. I was foregoing a salary to be in law school. So when I got close to graduation and I started, you know, interviewing and applying for jobs, I was completely shocked at what a lot of these law firms were offering as pay. For many of those job offers, it was less than what I was making prior to going to law school. So that was a dead stop. It was it was a hard no for me. There was no way that I was willing to take less than what I was making prior to going to law school. Now, the firms that were offering the salary that I was looking for, the six-figure salary, were large corporate firms and they required you to be at a certain level within your class, which I wasn't. You had to have a certain GPA. But aside from all of that, they had a very demanding expectation for how many hours you were going to work. And that was just not going to work for me. You know, my my husband and my children had sacrificed a lot of time with me for me to go to law school and then to study for the bar. I was not going to say, okay, thanks guys for supporting me and starting this legal career. And now I'm be gone all the time uh, so that I can make six figures. So against the advice of every person that I knew, I started a law practice. I started my own law practice directly out of law school. And people were like, girl, you are crazy. No one is going to hire you to be their lawyer when you've been practicing or licensed to practice law for five minutes. 
However, that good old marketing degree from the University of Maryland Eastern Shore came into such good use for me because, and I believe this still to be true today, even more so today because we have the internet. If you brand and market yourself, you can sell anything. You can be whoever you want to be. I am a firm believer of that. And I tell this to my clients all the time. So I did very, very well right out the gate within my practice. I was very good at the business stuff, right? I was good at the running of the business. I was good at the marketing and the sales and those pieces. However, I was not that great at practicing law because I really did not know it. And and if you're an entrepreneur, you know that half of your time is spent working on the business and half working in the business. And so that's a very difficult balance, especially when you're first starting out, when you don't know the parts of in the business. So although I was making consistently at at this time about $10,000 to $12,000 a month, which was definitely great. And I, I had, had met my six-figure goal. About a year after starting my practice, I was approached by a firm to bring my practice there and work for the firm. And so that was a very tough decision for me to make at that time because I was like, oh, wait, I don't need to go work for anybody. Look at me. I'm, I'm making all this money. But I Definitely felt like in order for me to grow, and this is where I probably learned the six figures was not all that much money. (laughs) Because what I didn't think about was, okay, I've got to pay taxes. I've got to pay for an assistant. I've got to pay for my office space. Back then I was, you know, marketing. I was using online marketing. I was in the yellow pages. I was doing all of these things. And so with my expenses, my take home was, was not six figures, right? And so another recession was happening. This was 2008. And I had been volunteering in a pro bono clinic that was run by one of the partners at this firm. She was the only woman partner at this firm. And I just admired her so much. She was just such a great lawyer. And we just hit it off. And so I would come early. This 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 um, pro bono clinic, by the way, was on Saturdays. It was on Saturday mornings, one Saturday a month. And so for a year, I did not miss this meeting. I went every single time. I was sitting at her feet trying to learn as much as I possibly could because I needed to know how to actually handle the cases that I was getting, right? I had no problem getting clients, but I needed to make sure that I knew what I was doing when I got in the courtroom. So I would get there early and I would stay late. So she asked me, we were cleaning up after one of our clinic sessions and she said, you know, have you ever thought about going to a firm. And I said, well, yeah, I applied to many firms, you know, before I started my practice, but, you know, either they couldn't pay or it was just too much work. I I couldn't find a good fit. And so she said, well, you know, I was talking to my partners about you. And I think that you have such promise as a young attorney. And I think you could, you would do so much better if you had the support of a law firm so that you could focus not on the business stuff, but really focus on just being a lawyer and getting good and becoming a great litigator. And so I was like, oh, oh, do I want to do this? You know, do I want to give up my money and give up my freedom? So she really sold me on the fact that because I was really what they would consider a non-traditional associate, because I had such a strong book of business, I would really be running my own practice just from within the confines of their firm. And so I still had all the freedom to work from home if I needed to, at this time, my, my youngest was starting kindergarten and she was just very supportive of that and the role that I wanted to be 
playing as a mom. And, you know, it was just so important to me to be there for my kids. I didn't want to miss the spelling bee. I, did, I wanted to chaperone field trips. And so this opportunity was presented to me in a way that I could do all of that and still have, I could work there, make a, a decent salary. It was not my salary that I was making on my own, but it was stable. And there were lots of reasons why that was a great decision. So I, I thought about it, prayed over it, and fasted for many months before I finally said yes. And I did. So I went to that firm and I and I did love it. I loved not having the pressure of the business side for that time, right? Being able to really research, write, go to court and watch other cases, get better. Like I was really focused on becoming the best possible lawyer that I could be. And I was allowed to do that, which was wonderful. But because it was, it's also just my nature to be a rainmaker, I really wasn't assigned cases from the firm. I was still working the cases that I had brought in, and I continued to bring in quite a bit of cases every every month. That was just something that I continued to do, continued to market myself. I was very active in the legal community and, and doing things to um, continue to bring in business. So... After I had been there for two years, and this woman was my managing partner and mentor. And so she told me that she was putting forth a motion at the partner annual meeting to have me promoted. And I was like, oh my goodness, this is just so great because this was not something that happened um, you know, for, uh, for someone who had only been at the firm for two years. But she felt that I had just done so well. I was killing the cop, you know, everyone else at my level. I mean, they they could not light a candle to me in terms of the value that I was bringing to the firm. And so one of my colleagues, a white male, found out that I was going to be on the agenda and there was going to be a vote as to whether or not I should be promoted. And he was ballistic. He could not believe that he had been there five years and I had been there two years and I was being considered and he wasn't. And so now, mind you, he was not bringing in the money that I was bringing in. He was not bringing all of the things that I was doing at the firm that made her believe in me. His managing partner did not believe that of him. And, and that's why a motion wasn't made. However, privilege is something, right? And if there's one thing that people with privilege have, it is the audacity. So he had the audacity to say, well, I'm demanding that I be considered and I'm putting myself on the agenda. Now, that's just insane to me that they even allowed him to do that, but they did. So, of course, they get to the partner meeting. He has forced his way onto the agenda. And, you know, I wasn't there, so I don't know what all the conversation was. But what I do know is that neither one of us got promoted. Now, I believe that a big part of why I wasn't was because of all the, this negative campaigning that he did saying she's only been here two years. How can you do her and not me? What type of precedent is this going to set? You know, there was a lot of that conversation that was brought to light by him. So I was furious. And wouldn't you know that a few months, I probably only 30 days or so, I can't remember exactly, after we got the decision about both of us not being promoted. He resigned and left the firm. So they shortchanged me on behalf of him and he left them high and dry. And that left me in a really messed up 
space because now I had to wait a whole nother year to be considered for a promotion. So I was livid. So a year later, I was promoted. And this role is like, it's a step in between being an equity partner or being a partner of the firm. So you're not a partner per se. You don't vote. You don't make decisions in terms of the finances of the firm, but you're also not an associate. So it's like a mid-level management type of position. Um, what I loved about the promotion was that it gave me a bonus structure based on the origination that I was bringing in. Because at my level as associate, there was no expectation for me to do it. But although I was doing it, I wasn't getting compensated for it, which I felt wasn't fair. So when I got promoted, that was a big plus for me because I wanted some recognition for all this money I was making for the firm. So at this level, we were not allowed in the parts of the meeting, we would go to that annual meeting, but we were not allowed to be in the room when certain financial things were being shared. So in 2013, I started to feel like I did not want to do this anymore. I had been a litigator for uh, seven years and I was really burnt out, you know? I mean, I was a divorce litigator. And so I was meeting people People were hiring me when they were at the worst times of their life, right? They were going through a, a divorce or a custody battle. And my clients were just under a lot of stress and a lot of pressure, and they would dump that on me. And so it began to wear me down. And it was just like, oh my goodness, I just don't think that I want to do this anymore. So I made a decision around in the summer of 2013 that 2014 was going to be my last year. I was going to, I was going to leave the next year. But I wouldn't really commit to a date. You know, you, you you say that, but I believe that that many companies and jobs put on us what I like to call golden handcuffs, meaning we're chained to that job, but they look pretty and shiny because we're getting a stable paycheck and there is a, a certain level of security that we have. So, you know, even though in my mind I'm like I want to leave, but I wasn't really making steps towards it and saying, this is the date and I'm out the door. So in 2014, at that annual meeting, I got there and for the first time since I had been promoted, they did not, they were discussing finances and they did not ask us to leave the room. This had never happened before. So I'm sitting in this room. And so just imagine a U-shaped table and there were all um, men. There was one woman, one white woman. There were no, there were no black men at the firm at this time. And there were no black women in management at that time. I think we might've had one associate at the time. I was the only black woman in the room, only black person in the room and all these white men and then one white woman. So I'm sitting around this table and there is a projector screen that has a spreadsheet of all of the associates at the firm. And the conversation that was happening at this time was to determine what were the raises going to be for that year. And so on the spreadsheet, I had the annual salary of each associate. And I looked up at that screen and I literally was frozen because every single person on that sheet 
that was beneath me, a level below me, every white man, every white woman was making more than me. And I could not, I just literally could not believe it. I couldn't believe it. I could not believe it. And so I was texting my husband. I was like, oh my God, you're not going to believe this. You're not going to, like, I could not believe that this was happening. And meanwhile, there's all this discussion about what their raises were going to be. People were arguing because, you know, partners wanted um, whoever their associate was. They wanted them to get the biggest raise and so forth. And I was just, by now I'm just completely checked out. I have tuned out because all I'm thinking is, Wow. And and this particular year was one of my best years that I had had. We, we saw the firm as a whole. We saw um, a dip in revenue around that 2009, 2010, you know, definitely in the recession. And so then 11, 12 were really big years for me and huge increases over the previous year. So I had about a 42% increase in my origination at that time. So I really felt very bitter. <laughs> I felt like, oh my goodness, I could, just can't believe this. So I was very upset. And then in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, now is the time, it's time to set the date. So the next morning, my managing partner, by the way, the woman who was my managing partner is no longer a partner at the firm. She had retired after her, her goal was to get me promoted and then she would retire. And that's exactly what she did. So I now have a white man as my managing partner. So he calls me and he tells me what my raise is. And he says, you, you're getting a 3% raise. Now, yesterday in the room, with where when they're discussing the people who don't bring in any money like me, they are not at my level, they are beneath me, and they are already making more than me, there was no discussion of anybody on there to get a 3% raise. And if I remember correctly, there was even argument that someone that they were very displeased with, they were just going to throw him a bone and give him a 5% raise. Yet this man is telling me that although I had a 42% increase in my origination, money that I made for that firm, that was way more than what they were paying me, that they were going to give me a 3% raise. And so that is what did it for me. You know, I really... I just said, okay, I didn't say anything. And I made the decision at that time that this is going to be my last year. And at the end of 2014, I am out the door. When I really thought about it and, you know, it, it re I really, it made sense, right? Like as upset as I was, it was something that I believe had to happen because who knows how long I would have stayed with those golden handcuffs. So I really got to this place of just thinking, okay, I get it now. You know, they don't see me. They don't see me. When they look at me, they can't relate to me. They don't know anyone like me. I don't remind them of themselves when they were young lawyers. When they look at the white men who were associates, they saw themselves. They saw the younger version of themselves. And this is why I say all the time that representation matters. I had no one in that room that was fighting for me the way they were fighting for the people that looked like them. And that's when I said, I can't do this. They will never give me a seat at this table because they don't see me, they don't value me, and they just didn't, right? And so for me, that was a defining moment in my life. My screensaver... <laughs> For the rest of 2014, that, that meeting was in January. For the rest of 2014, 
my screensaver on my phone and on my computer said, I am worth so much more than a 3% raise. And that is that was the motivation. That was the kick in the behind. That was the smack across the face that I needed to say, girl, what are you doing? These people do not value you and they will never value you. And so it is time for you to write your own rules and build your own table. And that's exactly what I decided to do. The other thing that I do believe is that that had to happen for a reason. And I do believe that God needed me to see that. I I needed to see what took place so that in those years to come, in 2015 and 2016 and 2017, and my worst year ever was 2019 as an entrepreneur, that in those times, no matter how low the lows got, I would never question or think, would I have been better off had I stayed there? And so I believe that that had to happen in order for me to go through everything that I've had to go through as an entrepreneur. And so for that, I thank them. I am grateful. I have no hard feelings. I am still very cordial and and connected with many of them. I have never confronted them about what I saw because I just felt that it was bigger than that. It didn't matter. It was what I needed to see in order for me to make the moves that I needed to make. So I hope that that encourages you to embrace even those times where people are counting you out, writing you off, mistreating you in whatever it is that you are going through, that you will just say, what is it that I am supposed to take from this situation, from this moment and turn into something greater? That is my message for you today. I hope you enjoyed today's show. And if you did, remember to hit subscribe and head over to buildyourowntablepodcast.com to stay updated and connected with me. I'm Nakia Gray. I'll see you next time.